1210. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Let's get right to it. U.S. Supreme Court comes out with a decision today that reverses a case from 1992 that has the potential to affect each and every one of you. Um, it's interesting because the Supreme Court is split along ideological lines. There's five conservatives. There's four liberals. What happens occasionally is Justice Anthony Kennedy, will, who is, is basically sides with the conservatives, every once in a while he'll, he'll vote with the liberals. So, I mean, every, that's why in controversial decisions you see five, four decisions, and it always, almost always breaks down the same way, four justices on one side, four justices on the other, Anthony Kennedy typically with the conservatives, but every once in a while voting with the liberals. What's so interesting about this case today is it's a 5-4 decision, but it, it's split ideologically. Um, Anthony Kennedy, again, he's, he's in the majority, but I'm, I'm looking at the decision right now. It, it has the five people who voted for it is Justices Alita, uh, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas, conservatives, and they're joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is arguably the most liberal member of the court. And on the dissent, you've got Stephen Breyer, um, Justice Sotomayor, um, Justice Kagan, and the Chief Justice Roberts. So it's this is one that doesn't hew down ideological lines, which makes it kind of interesting. I want to discuss this with you. Going back to 1992... The Supreme Court ruled that if you are an Internet seller, you do not have to collect state sales taxes on the cost on, on the goods that you sell unless unless you have a physical presence in the particular state. So, for example, Amazon has a physical presence in Wisconsin. They've got you know, that warehouse facility down in the Kenosha area. Well, Amazon, under this decision, would have to collect sales tax on purchases that were made. Amazon does it anyways. Walmart does it anyways. But the law says that you don't have to collect state sales tax on Internet sales unless the seller, you the seller, have a physical presence in the state. And this 1992 Supreme Court case found that it would just be too burdensome on the sellers. Now, if you buy goods, you are supposed to pay sales tax on them. You know That's why when you fill out your Wisconsin state tax return, there's always a line that says, all right, Internet purchases that you didn't pay sales tax on, and you're supposed to voluntarily fill in a number. Almost nobody fills in that number. So the state's... Um, are getting beat out of sales tax that they might otherwise arguably be entitled to get. Local brick-and-mortar stores also go nuts over this because, for example, if you go to Barnes & Noble and you buy, I don't know, $50 worth of books, they're going to charge you the state sales tax. You're going to pay it, and then they're going to forward it on to the state of Wisconsin. If you buy the books from an online retailer who doesn't collect the sales tax, well, you know, you're supposed to voluntarily report it, but like I say, no one does. And that's been the way the law has been set up. And you've got a lot of um, the states are just screaming bloody murder because they're saying we're getting cheated out of sales tax. We've got people in our state 
who are purchasing items on the Internet and they're not paying sales tax. And again, you've got a lot of brick-and-mortar stores who are making the same argument. They're saying, hey, it's unfair competition. You come into our store. We have to charge sales tax. The person buys the dehumidifier over the Internet. I'm looking for a dehumidifier right now. Buys the dehumidifier over the Internet, and they don't pay the sales tax. That That is wrong. By a 5-4 to four decision today, the Supreme Court said, you know, we got it wrong back in 1992. It's the wrong decision, and things have changed. And so what they are saying is that states now have the authority to require Internet sellers to withhold sales tax. And the argument is things have changed since 1992. The technology is there for, you know, retailers to be able to ease online sellers to easily be able to figure out, you know, what what the sales tax is in a particular area and to add that on to the cost of your bill. And technology is such that it's not that hard for them to be able to collect it. So rather than disadvantage the brick-and-mortar retailers, and rather than essentially cheat the states out of money that they would otherwise be entitled to, states can now require Internet sellers to charge you the sales tax. Right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And like I say, this already happens. Walmart does it voluntarily. Amazon does it voluntarily. But Amazon would have to do it in Wisconsin anyways because they've got that distribution center. They've got the physical presence. So they would have to do it anyways because they've got the physical presence in Wisconsin. 414-799-1620. You may disagree with me on this, but I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I think I think this is fair. If you're going to, you live in the state of Wisconsin and you're going to purchase that dehumidifier and you're going to go up to Costco, you're going to have to pay whatever the sales tax is. If you go onto the internet and you buy it from another larger seller, I just guess I just fundamentally don't think it's right that you should be able to avoid that state sales tax. You are in the state you are making the purchase. And again, I don't think, given the way technology is developed, that this is really going to be that burdensome for, you know, most of the companies that are, in fact, doing business. And if it is, well, the sellers can always just simply say, all right, we're not going to sell to people who are, you know, trying to order our product from Wisconsin or North Carolina or whatever. 414-799-1620. I don't have a problem with this decision. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1217, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The U.S. Supreme Court comes out with a decision today reversing a 1992 case that now says that online sellers can be required, don't have to be, states have that choice, can be required to withhold state sales tax. So if you buy an item You live in Wisconsin, you buy an item from an online seller, you you can be required to pay that sales tax to the state of Wisconsin, just like if you went to a local department store, bought that same item, bought that dehumidifier, you would have to pay the sales tax. I actually think it's fundamentally fair. I, I, I do. And many of the large Internet sellers already do this, like I say. And if you have a physical presence in the state, you, you have to do it anyways. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Larry in Walworth. Hi, Larry. Hi, how are you today? Good. What do you think? 
Well, you know what? I agree that it is fundamentally a good idea, and I think it, it is fair. I don't have any disagreement on that. I'm an online retailer that sells replacement water filters uh, throughout the country as well as the world. And Amazon is a great business vehicle for that for me. But my concern is not collecting the tax at the appropriate rate. It's, it's actually paying that state the tax because um, there's some states I do very little business in, and it's not simply as easy as writing a check to a state. Oftentimes you have to register, you have to get on file, you have to bank electronically. So that's that's my concern is the actual hindrance to making that payment, not collecting it, right. not the fairness, but the actual making the payment to the appropriate uh, state. Well, you know, what, what I think, I guess my often, and I, I'm not a, an Internet seller, my guess is this will sort of work itself out because my guess is if you have – States that are too internet retailer unfriendly. You know, let, 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 let's say you've got a particular state that makes, that says, all right, you've got to jump through all these different hoops, you know, in, in order to sell to one of our residents. My guess is a lot of e- re- internet retailers will simply say, okay, we're not going to sell to some, we're not going to take orders from North Carolina or we're not going to take orders from Wyoming. Right. I understand that, but uh, as a small business right. owner, I don't want to exclude anybody. Right. Um, Right, and, but I am very concerned about the actual uh, the amount of, uh, of red time tape that it would take to to register to make the payment. I have no problem making the payment. Right. No, it's I get a, it. No, yeah. no. Th- so thanks for calling, Larry. No, I get it. No, thanks. I mean, I I understand. I think that's a fair concern. That's why I I think that what you're going to see is that I, I think if states decide to do this, now states don't have to, um, but if states decide to do it. They've got to figure out a way to make it user. First of all, I think as a practical matter for the small sellers, it ends up being more trouble than it's worth. And so I, I would be shocked if the majority of states that do this, if, if they don't put some minimum threshold, you have to have X amount of dollar sales in the state before you know these provisions kick in. Um, because otherwise it, it does in fact become cross prohibitive. I think the states are also going to be under pressure to do it in a, what I'm describing as a user friendly way to make it easier for you to do that. Because again, like I say, if I'm the seller and I, I only, I only maybe every year I, I get two or three orders from Wyoming. All right. And Wyoming, for example, makes it just uh, impossible. It's impossible to, that I have to register. You have to do these transfers. It's going to cost me a fortune to set up this deal. Well, I, I think the effect is, like I say, a lot of Internet sellers are simply going to say, well, we're, we're not going to, for the three sales that we might make in Wyoming this year, it's not worth the effort, which is why there will be the incentive on the states to try to make this as user-friendly as possible. So I understand that there's we always talk about the devil in the details, and I understand that there's some element of, of have, how you work this out, and I would imagine most states, like I say, will have thresholds where you have to have a certain amount of sales to make it worthwhile to do that. And if you make it too hard, the retailer's going to pull back. But I guess I do I do look out. I am concerned about the brick-and-mortar retailers, the, the people who are competing with the Internet products, and the brick-and-mortar retailers – are presumably they're paying the property tax. They're paying the un- the unemployment comp for you know their employees. They're putting the store in the area shopping mall. And to the extent that you know they have to collect sales tax, the person that's sitting in Wyoming selling the same good or a similar good, they don't have to collect that. I do think that's an unfair advantage. So to me, this um, this you know levels the playing field. 
Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. I don't really have a problem with this. And, you know, I begrudgingly admit that I may have purchased a few things online that I don't need. Some, you know, like the Blu-ray copy of Night of the Lepus. <laughs> and, and, you know, before I, I go out and I get online and purchase that, um, you know, Cop Rock Olive Stuffer, <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about this and using this as a, as a way to kind of discipline myself a little better. Well, you know, it's interesting, Jeff. I, I don't, you know, Amazon for years and years didn't collect, let, let's just, they, they did not collect sales tax from Wisconsin residents. That changed a few years ago when they, they built a big uh, facility down in Kenosha. And now they've changed, just like Walmart has changed, and they collect it from everybody because they find it's not that big a deal. I don't think that's hurt Amazon's business. I mean, my, my sense is people buy is just as much from Amazon as they do otherwise. Um, but at the same time, it does kind of level the playing field with the local brick-and-mortar seller. Yeah, I mean, if I look in the foyer of my apartment building, it's still got a lot of stuff boxes yeah. from Amazon in there. But I, I, I suspect that it might increase slightly, but I don't think it's yeah. really going to hurt. Right, right. Thanks for calling. And again, I mean, see, and, and what gets lost in all this is that as a, as a seller, I mean, if you are supposed to, under the law, pay sales tax on your purchases, and the way it works is the retailer, again, you go into that brick-and-mortar store, they they collect the sales tax for you and forward it to the state. So, I mean, it's not like if you live in the state of Wisconsin and you make that purchase, it's not like you're suppo- not supposed to pay the sales tax. This is just a way of, of requiring people to collect it in the same fashion that the retailer has to um, collect it. I, I guess, I mean, we, we can, I will be curious to see how this all plays out. If the states impose restrictions that make it too difficult for small online retailers to do business, I think that there's going to end up being a backlash. And I guess we're not going to know the answer to that for, you know, a couple of years till this all plays out. And I, I just, I think states have to be smart as to how they implement this. But from an overall perspective, do I think this is fundamentally fair? My answer is, yeah, I, I, I think it is, and I think the court kind of got this right. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, is there anything that the president could do to make his critics happy? I'll give you a clue. The answer is no. Stick around. 1227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The road to you know where is paved with good intentions. Screw who's producing the show today. You would have been embarrassed to see me yesterday. Here, here. Okay, so... Last night, my, my wife had one of her rare evenings off, and so we went to dinner with a dear friends of ours, our friends Maggie and Dale. So we, we go out, we, we have dinner, and then afterwards, they say, we've got a gift for you. So that, that's great, because they, they know I, I like good bourbon, they know I like whiskey and stuff, and so what they had done, there's a, um, there's a most bourbon is made in Kentucky, what, what makes what makes bourbon whiskey, bourbon whiskey, there's a couple rules, but basically, it, it's got to be at least 50% corn mash. Sometimes, otherwise, just general whiskey is made by, sometimes it's wheat, it's rye, it's corn, it's a mixture. Bourbon has to be at least 50% corn mash, and then there's other, there's rules as to how it has to be aged and things like that. So anyhow, they, um, they, they say, oh, this is kind of interesting. We were going back from Florida, and we've heard about this. Most bourbon is made in Kentucky, but there's a, a little town in North Carolina, kind of by where um, Andy Griffith grew up, and they, they make this stuff, it's called Conviction Bourbon. And they make it small batches, 
it's a it's a converted jailhouse. And, you know, I mean, you, you can go in and you can tour it. It, it literally it's an old jailhouse and they make, you know, small batches of of this this bourbon whiskey. And so, OK, they, they buy me a bottle of this. Oh, it's very cool. Thank you very much, Dale and Maggie. And all right, we're, we're, we're driving home and my wife looks over at me. I'm driving and she says, my God, what happened to you? And I'm thinking, I don't know exactly. So I look in the rearview mirror and my face is covered with glitter. I mean, just covered with glitter. It's in my hair. It's all over my hands. I mean, it, it does. I mean, it looks like you were standing. It looks like you were sitting in the front row at a strip club, and some like giant glitter bomb went off, and you know, it fell all over you, or so I'm told. So I mean, I'm covered in glitter. It's all over my face. It's in my hair, and and it's it's my hands, and I'm like trying to I'm like trying to wipe it off my face, and it all I'm doing is spreading it around. I got all this sticky glitter all over, and I'm trying to figure out where the blank did did I get this glitter? Well, okay, the, the outside of the 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 bag when they gave me the the bottle of of bourbon it was in this like gift bag i don't know where where they got the gift bag from but the gift bag when you touch it it's full of glitter i mean there's just all this glitter all over there and so next i mean i'm literally covered in this i i'm just i i get home and i'm trying to i'm trying to just use a washcloth at the sink trying to get this glitter that's not working it's like you got to get in the shower to get this stuff off i've never seen so much glitter and it's all just all over so as we're driving home, my wife says, well, we, we need a couple things from the store, like a dehumidifier. Let's stop off and go shopping. I'm saying, look at me. I can't, I can't walk into this place. I'm covered from head to toe with glitter. But actually, the interesting thing about it is I've now decided I want to find out where our friends got that particular bag because I want to buy a whole bunch of them because, you know, anytime you've got somebody that you just want to play a great practical joke on or that, you know, you're a little bit annoyed with, you just give them the thing with all the glitter. You will be all set. But it was just, um, and by the way, the whiskey is pretty good, so it's worth it. It was a little bit of glitter, but if you happen to see me yesterday around 8 o'clock at night, like in this parking lot of this restaurant, and you wonder, huh, that looks like Jeff Wagner. Why is he covered in glitter? It's not my fault. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. All right. I, I fully understand why some people do not like President Trump. I, I get it. And regardless of how you feel about his policies, whether you're in favor or not, I understand that there's stuff about his personality that just it's a turnoff to a lot of people. By the way, myself included, I I was never forget forget the politics. I was never a fan of the Celebrity Apprentice or The Apprentice or things like that, because I, I just find on a personal level, I find the president to be before he was I found him to be off putting. And that's it's just it's he's not my type of guy. And you can you know, draw whatever conclusion you want from that. But I I work real hard on this show to try to separate the policy from the personality. And I understand there's a lot of people who, who can't do that. But I, I continue to work at that effort. Now, over the last few days, the, the media cause has been the whole thing with separating people who come into this country illegally and bring their kids in. But let's let's just review the bidding very, very quickly because we've talked about this a, a lot. What happens is if you have people who come into this country illegally um, and they, let's say they, they want to ask for asylum, our policy under Obama, at least at the end of the Obama term, was that if they come in with kids, they will not be they would not be detained. They would be given a notice saying, all right, 
Come back in a month, and we're going to have your, your hearing on whether you're entitled to asylum or not. Most people don't get asylum, get sent back. But they, they were told, all right, come back in a month or come back in six weeks or whatever, two weeks, whatever the thing would be, and, and you'll have your hearing. And what happens is 80% just don't come back. So coming into the country with children was essentially a get into the United States free card because you couldn't be detained. Um, the kids couldn't be detained with the parents. Um, you didn't want to separate the families. So you just let everybody go. And this became just this, again, this giant runaround of the law because the word got out, come in, ask for asylum, you'll be released, and then, you know, just go ahead and disappear. Right. Well, the Trump administration decided that that's not working. So what they did is they separated. The parents would be detained, but they wouldn't be detained with the children. Now, the reason why that policy was put into effect is there was a court decision that came out during the Obama years that said you can detain the parents, but you can't detain the children in the same facilities with the parents. So the choice was either detain everybody, either separate the families or release them. It wasn't working. So what President Trump did, he said, okay, well, we're, we're going to change this. We're going to detain. We're going to hold the children. They're going to be separate from the parents. As I said yesterday, the solution to this is easy and obvious, and it is simply Congress passes a new law making it clear that the parents can be held with the children and you fund whatever type of place you're going to have, whatever type you're going to type of camp you're going to have. It, it it's just it's the simple solution. You keep the parents and the families together, but you don't just simply turn them loose, knowing that most people aren't going to come back. I, I I think that's easy and obvious, and that's pretty much what President Trump did yesterday, and it's what again um, Paul Ryan is trying to do today with legislation moving through Congress. It, it's just, it seems to me it's, it's pretty simple. This is how you do it. But anyhow, Trump says yesterday, I'm going to issue this executive order, and we're going to stop separating families. Now, you would think, perhaps, that that would be getting applause from both sides of the aisle. I mean, the, the Democrats were making political hay, and the news media was jumping on this, saying, oh, this is terrible, look at this, you've got the parents that are being held separate, this is just inhumane, how awful, how awful, look at these various pictures. Well, okay, so Trump issues this order that's essentially going to say this is going to stop for the foreseeable future. Now, you need congressional action, you need funding to come in and, again, pay for the t- facilities that you're going to put, put people in, but the, the policy is now we're going to keep the families together, but we are going to hold them. Now, you would think that that would be something that would be met by large rounds of applause. Well, well, no, because the ink wasn't even dry on the, the order from Trump. And now you've got the Democrats saying, oh, this, this, is, this is absolutely nothing. I mean, he doesn't get applause for doing this. So now, now it is, well, we, we're, we're not impressed at all because, yes, he, he signed this. But how can he authorize these families to essentially be now detained um, until their hearing comes out? He's now, it's not separation. Now the families are going to be together, but now they're going to be detained until their hearing is conducted. To which I say, yeah, your point, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I mean, look, here, here's the bottom line of all this. Unless we are simply going to say, 
come into this country, and if you bring your children, we are just going to allow you to come into the country. Don't bother with the asylum requests. Don't bother with any of these things. You're just going to get in. Unless we are going to do that, and I don't think it makes any sense to do it, this is the only logical thing that we can do. But it's not going to be applauded by the Democrats because they think they can make political hay. And now the argument is going to be not that you've separated the families, but, oh, you've got these children that are detained with their parents. How terrible that is. And the solution, they would suggest, is just release everybody. Well, I would argue releasing everybody doesn't work. It's a bad situation made worse by the fact that you have people who come into this country illegally bringing their kids with them. Now we're going to keep the kids and the families together. Shouldn't that be enough? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. If the problem was the families were split, all right, now now we're keeping the families together. So now it's that moving target. Now the issue is, well, you're keeping them together, but you're detaining them. Well, yeah, we're detaining them because if we release them, we know that 80% of the people never come back for their hearings. So I would argue you can't release them. This is the solution that, to me, makes sense. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1249, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. And again, I, I understand why there's a lot of people who are put off by the president's style. Believe me, I, I get it. But the argument for the last week has been, oh, we've got this terrible policy. We're separating families at who come into this country illegally. Well, if you allow the adults to simply self-report, if you just turn them loose, they don't. That We, we know that. 80% or so don't come back. So you can't just release them. So what you have to do is you have to hold them. So now Trump has signed this executive order saying, all right, we're going to have the families you know, held together. I think at the end of the day, you need congressional action to do this. I, I think there's a problem Legally with this, I think you need exact, I think you need Congress to pass the, a law to authorize this. I'm all in favor of it. But after, for a week or so, after hearing, oh, this is terrible, this is terrible, you know, are you getting anything from the Democrats saying, okay, this is a good step? Now you're saying, no, 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 this is just terrible to, to keep the kids confined. Well, okay, sorry. Well, if that's the worry, maybe mom and dad shouldn't come into the country illegally in the first place. Jim and Mequon. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Here's what's going to happen on this. Is- is now Trump signed this executive order. Now he's going to be sued over it. Yep. So he, he, he actually gave the Democrats what they wanted. He does that. They, now they're going to turn around and sue him. And, and he's stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right. Uh, and he's not going to be able to enforce this. And, and the Democrats don't care about the kids. This is just nothing but a huge political game to them. And yeah. Right, right. Cause if they, you're, you know, you're right, Jim. And, and you keep kind of, it's, it's sort of like, you know, Lucy, Pulling the football away from Charlie Brown. Okay, what is the, what is the goal? The big issue for the last week has been, well, we've got to get the families together. Okay, so now the family's going to get together. Now it's not, oh, this is great. Now, oh, this is terrible because the kids might be held in detention indefinitely. Well, you know, what 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 are you going to do? Right, and, and, and Jeff, could you touch on that thing? I think it's called a florist or florist decision. Is that what it's called? Right, right. Right. Yeah. And, uh, t- t- thanks. For, I mean, in, in summary, what happened was, see, what, what the Obama administration was doing is they were separating people just just like um, the, the Trump administration ended up doing. And then they backed off on it. There was a lawsuit. You have what's called the Flores case, which said 
that that you could detain the parents, but you couldn't detain the the children in the same sort of in the same facility that you're you're holding the parents in. So that's what the problem has been. You can't hold it all together. That's why I'm not sure an executive order solves this. I think you need congressional action to override the court decision, and you need funding to build whatever sort of places you're going to hold everybody. That's why, I mean, I, I think this executive order is going to run afoul of this, this Flores decision, which is why I'm saying you need Congress to get involved in this. But the bigger point is, as I was arguing yesterday, I think this is the obvious solution, but there's no credit being given, there's no acknowledgement, which shows what a political football this, this has become. Laura in Milwaukee. Hi, Laura. Hi. Um, I was thinking about yesterday you were referring to someone else having the attention span of a fruit fly. Okay. That pretty much describes Trump and his morality. I'm, I'm not as concerned about the future as I am about the children that have been ripped from their parents already. How are they going to get back to them? There's not a lot of documentation, if there is any. And I've worked with young children, and I know how traumatic that is. Well, let me, let, let's take a couple of I mean, obviously, obviously you have to figure out a way to reunite families. And so, I mean, I... I, I don't I, think they've got any way to do it. Well, and that, that'll be the follow-up story, and if they don't, that I concede that's an issue. But let, let's talk about the second thing you said, just the, the ripping from families. I mean, I, if, if I rob, if I've got three kids at home and I rob a bank. A I don't think that they all, before they came over, knew what was going to happen. I think a lot of them only speak Spanish. I don't think America went over to Mexico in Spanish and said, hey, this is what's going to happen. I think it, it runs in parallel with, this is just me, World War II and Nazi Germany. They told a lie. They what? kept it simple. Well, what's the lie? What's the lie? Who, who, who told a lie and what's the lie? A liar, so. But, 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 um, well, what's, no, 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 let, let. I mean, that, that's, that, that's a pretty big thing to say, you know, whenever you're likening it to Nazi Germany. So what, what is the lie that the Trump administration told to people who were entering the country illegally? Well, I think they were not aware of what was going to happen. Well, okay, that, I mean, thank, Laura, that, that's, I, that, that, that's, that's different than saying that we were lied to. I mean, to... To suggest that the, the Trump administration, well, I, I just, in all fairness, I, I, to suggest that the Trump administration wants people to come into this country illegally so they can separate the families, I, I think, I don't think anybody believes that. I mean, this is, the, the Trump administration's big point is don't come into this country illegally. We want to build the wall. We want to have legal immigration. I think they've done everything they could to discourage people from coming in. Now, do people, you know, who are asking for asylum know the consequences? And actually, I, I guess I would disagree with you. I, I think the majority of people know exactly what's going to happen, and they're willing to take the, the risks. They hear about the, the one family in a 100 that gets granted asylum, so they're willing to take that risk. My guess would be the vast majority of people know exactly what is going to happen to them. But But regardless, unless you are going to allow people to just disappear into this country 
And unless we're going to have open borders, and I think some people think that's a good idea, I just this is, seems to me it's it's the only thing you can do that that's going to work. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but obviously this is the big story of the day. We're going to continue this for one more segment. Hold it over during the news. I I, I really have trouble with the okay. You, we've told the big lie. It's like Nazi Germany. I I don't I don't know what that big lie would be. This is is a problem that is necessitated because people make the decision to come into this country illegally. All right, once they've made that decision, we have to figure out how to deal with it. I think this is a reasonable way of dealing with it. I've got some concerns about the legalities, but I don't know what else you can do. 414-799-1620. It's 12:56. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One oh nine, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ Group, who's producing the show today and always. You're a movie fan. You know who Peter Fonda is? You don't know who Peter Fonda is. Eric. You, you yes, know. I know who Peter Fonda is. He's, he's, he's an actor. Yes. Yeah, right. I mean, do you know what he's what he's within? Uh, he was in the uh the motorcycle one. What's that movie? With uh <laughs> with is that with Jack Jack Nicholson? Am I totally guessing now? No, no, no. You're Easy Rider. Easy Rider, thank you. Right, okay, all right. Peter Fonda. All right. Now, see, this, this, well, actually, this kind of leads into the point that I was going to kind of make. Um, Peter Fonda is the younger brother of Henway Jane Fonda. Peter and Jane Fonda are the children of Henry Fonda, who a famous actor in, in his own right. I mean, you know, Hen- Henry Fonda did, did all sorts of, you know, incredible movies and things like that. And Peter and Jane Fonda are kind of viewed as Hollywood royalty because of who they are, who they were born to. Peter Fonda has, uh, he's actually been acting since, I'm kind of looking at the screen credits, since 1962. But of all the different things he did, the, the, the only, the only thing that, the only things that I think people would, would really recognize other than, well, he was in Dirty Mary and Crazy Larry, but, but the, 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 the big, the big things he did, he, he did Easy Rider in 1968 or 1969 with Dennis Hopper and Jack Nicholson. And that kind of, um, it, it brought in the, the new wave of, of movie making before you had kind of the studio system and they went out and they made this movie and it was a huge success. And, you know, Easy Rider is, I, I, I like the movie. It's an interesting movie to watch. I mean, it is it is a time capsule of a particular point in, in time, which is, like I say, the, the late 1960s. It was a huge hit. But Peter Fonda really hasn't done anything that you would know about, with the exception of um, he was in Yuli's Gold back in 1996 or 1997, where he played like a beekeeper. But but otherwise, he's got 100-plus credits, and, and chances are you, you probably don't know any of them, but Easy Rider sort of made his, made his career. He's 78 years old now. Um, I, I bring this up because, again, this guy is, is part of Hollywood royalty. He's apparently got a small part in a movie that's coming out that's being released on Friday called Boundaries. I have no idea what, what that is about, and it's not on my list of things to see, but that that's that's who Peter Fonda is. Now, again, he's the younger brother of Jane Fonda. Jane Fonda, notorious for, during the Vietnam War, visiting North Vietnam and yucking it up in the, um, sitting in, in the turret of the anti-aircraft gun that's used to shoot down American planes. Hence, you know, she's always had the nickname um, Hanoi Jane. Very, very liberal family. Well, over over the last couple days, um, Peter Fonda goes Roseanne Barr on 
the Internet and in a series of late night tweets. And whenever whenever you see these tweets that are coming out at one or two or three or four in the morning, you got to figure that you have really angry, somewhat disturbed people who might be kind of chemically altered. Now, I don't know, but I mean, you know, there, I think there's probably at least a chance of that. Well, anyhow, if you haven't heard of it, this about it, I, I want to give you an edited, and I've got to say edited, because I can't say some of the things that are in the, these tweets, a version, edited versions of some of the tweets that, that he puts out. Peter Fonda is upset that the Trump policy of separating the parents from the kids, okay? So capital letters. Here's one that he, he sends out. He says, we should hack this system. Get the addresses of the ICE agents, CBP agents, surround their homes in protest. We should find out what schools their children go to and surround the schools in protest. These agents are doing this because they want to do it. They are doing this. And then he puts the F word in capital letters. So let's, let's hack into the system, find out the addresses of the immigration agents, and then identify where their kids go to school. Then he goes on, capital letters. We should rip Baron Trump. That's, of course, the 12-year-old son of President Trump. We should rip Baron Trump from his mother's arms, put him in a cage with pedophiles, and see if mother will stand up against the giant, um, I can't say the word, she is married to. 90 million people in the streets on the same weekend in the country, and then he uses the F word again. All right. Then, not content with that, he goes after the director of Homeland Security, um, you know, Kirsten Nielsen. All right. He says, Kirsten Nielsen is a lying, and I can't say this word on the radio either, that should be put in a cage and poked at by passerbys. The, I can't say the word again, should be pilloried in Lafayette Square naked and whipped by passerby while being filmed for posterity. He then takes another tweet. He calls Sarah Sanders, the spokesperson, a lying, and I can't say that word either, as well. Um, okay. Um, and let's see. And then he goes on to say, and the word he uses is much worse than the C word. That, of course, that was the Samantha B thing. Maybe we should take her children away and deport her to Arkansas and giving her children to Stephen Goebbels Miller for safekeeping. So you have these series of tweets talking about, let's try to get the names and addresses of ICE agents and then let's confront their children. Let's take, let's try to abduct Baron Trump, rip him from his mother's arms, put him in a cage with pedophiles, etc., etc., etc. Okay. Now, after this comes out, there is, well, there, there's a huge backlash by a lot of people saying, well, well wait a second. Um, you know, Roseanne Barr said this type of stuff. She lost her TV show. Um, you know, what are going to be the consequences to Peter Fonda? And you're hearing just absolute crickets, silence from the left. Um, late last night, late Tuesday night, he, he sends out another tweet. 
I tweeted something highly inappropriate and vulgar about the president and his family in response to the devastating images I was seeing on television. Like many Americans, I am very impressed and distraught over the situation with children separated from their families at the border, but I went way too far. It was wrong, and I should not have done it. I immediately regretted it and sincerely apologized to the family for what I said and any hurt my words have caused. Like I say, he's got a movie that's coming out on Friday, and a number of people are saying to Sony Pictures, which is the outfit that's releasing it, um, hey, you know, what what are you going to do here? I mean, are there... Are you going to recut this to get rid of his role? Are you going to still release it? Roseanne Barr lost her TV show. Should there be consequences for Peter Fonda? So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Accunate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Uh, Peter Fonda comes out with some of the vilest tweets, I, I think, imaginable. He then subsequently says, well, he's kind of sorry that he said this. Should there be more consequences than this? Or is this just an example of kind of a double standard? Ah, if you're a conservative and you say something like this, boom, you're going to lose your TV shows. If you're a liberal, well, it's all part of the course. 414-799-1620. Or should Peter Fonda have to apologize at all? I mean, is this, is this the American discourse now? You know, hey, it's the president's son. Let's, let's abduct this 12-year-old. Let's throw him in a cage. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. Peter Fonda in the news. 118. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 120. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If this were a conservative movie star, and I guess, you know, we'll, we'll use that term broadly. I mean, Peter Fonda, he's Hollywood royalty, who did something like this and had a movie coming out on Friday. I guarantee you that movie, the release date would have been, would be pushed back. They'd be looking at editing his role out of it. Sony says, well, I mean, Sony's exact response to this, I have it right here, is that they say, um, we condemn his remarks completely. It is important to note that Mr. Fonda plays a very minor role in the film. To pull or alter this film at this point would unfairly penalize the filmmaker's accomplishment. The many actors, crew members, and other creative talent that worked hard on the project. Okay, well, what does that say about all the cast and crew that worked on the Roseanne Barr show? They're out of work, and I understand they're talking about trying to do a reboot, but right now they're out of work because of what Roseanne Barr did. If Peter Fonda has a small role in this thing, it seems to me it would be easy enough to cut him out and delay the date. But again, because it's a liberal saying horrible things and suggesting horrible things be done to the child, the 12-year-old child of the president, I guess we look the other way. Jeff in Waukesha. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. There's a double standard, no doubt. But at the same time, what are you going to do to Peter Fonda? The guy barely gets any work as it is. <laughs> and the work, that, the work that he does get is because of his dad. I mean, he's not that good of an actor. And you really think anybody's going to go see that movie because Peter Fonda's in it? If they cut them out, they might actually get more people to go to it. Well, well that's the point. I mean, what's, I guess really that, that I guess, see, that's why, you know, Sony's response is so silly to me. They're saying, well, he's only got it. We're not going to we're not going to alter the film. He's only got a small role. Well, if he's got a small role, you, you get rid of it. I mean, Kevin Spacey, I understand it's a different world, but Kevin Spacey gets accused of, you know, um, in you know improper you know behavior with regard to, you know, other actors. And, and what do they do? They, they they essentially erase him from you know the the movies that are coming out. But since it's Peter Fonda, well, we're going to look the other way. No, thanks. I get, it's the double standard that that I guess bothers me, and the fact that you know when he sent out these tweets, if if you really want to see 
the hate left that is out there. You you just you look at some of the responses that various people have, which is, yeah, this might be a little over the top, but you know, this is this is what is called for. Yes, okay, you're attacking the twelve year old son of the president of the United States. I mean, really, if somebody would have tried to do that with regard to President Obama and suggested, oh, we should we should put the Obama daughters in a cage with pedophiles or something like that, you there there would be incredible Incredible outrage, and that person would never work again. It would be the lead story. Um, it would be headlines in the New York Times and the Washington Post and MSNBC and ABC and CBS and NBC. But, well, no. Steve in Green Bay. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Hi, Steve. Um, yeah, th- this is just so upsetting. And, and y- you look at what he said compared to Roseanne Barr. I mean, what she did, and I, I mean, you could say it was racist and tasteless and everything else, but. It pales in comparison to what this guy said. You know, I didn't think it was possible to uh, search past his sister, but I think he did it, you know. Well, I mean, right, we should rip Baron Trump from his mother's arms, put him in a cage with pedophiles, and see if his mother will stand up against the giant fill-in-the-blank she is married to. I mean, it's just... And again, this is, I guess, this is what passes for the norm. And you have somebody who's got this little, I guess, whiff of celebrity around him. So it gets this kind of attention. Well, okay. I mean, if you want to send out these tweets and get that attention, that's fine. But shouldn't there be consequences? Well, I'll be putting something on my Facebook page tonight about this. It's going to be my copy of what used to be one of my favorite LPs, the soundtrack of Easy Riders, going in the final pit. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Yeah, I mean, again, this is, and again, one of the tests was, I, I mean, I don't know how many people know Peter Fonda anymore. Like I say, he, I mean, Easy Rider was this revolutionary movie back in the, the 60s and things like that. And that's, and it, it's still, I mean, again, I, I think as a time capsule, it's kind of an interesting movie and it kind of revitalized, re- it changed Hollywood. I'll just use it like that. But here, clearly, you've got this 78-year-old hardcore lefty that's completely obsessed with hatred to the point. I mean, don't people think before they send out the tweets? I mean, how many stories do we have like that? I mean, I understand if you want to if you want to pull a Robert De Niro and you want to come out in public and say, oh, I've got one thing to say, you know, blank Trump. Okay, that's I, I get it. You're unhinged. Fine. But at least those times, you're, you're directing your anger at the president of the United States. And I think in that case, you suffer consequences as well. But here you have this bozo who is attacking the children, the child, this, a 12-year-old son, and apparently no consequences. Sony says, well, we agree he was kind of over the top, but we're not going to change the movie. Hmm. 126, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 136, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Bear with me. I've told this story before. My... Um, my my dad's mom, my my grandmother, um, was just an avid fan of professional wrestling, and and actually got me into it. Right, my my parents would take me over to my grandparents' house like on Saturday night. I'd spend the night. They'd go out, and and my grandmother on Saturday night would sit and and watch professional wrestling. And Lord love her. To the day she died, she never realized that professional wrestling was scripted or you know fake. But you know that. But the, the the plot lines were all drawn, and they were playing characters. She she never never knew that, and and you couldn't tell her that. I mean, that was just that was just it. That was who she was. But but from from sitting there, and I still remember this. I mean, sitting there 
you know, in the living room eating, you know, she would make whatever she would make and we'd sit there at the TV trays and we'd watch the, we'd watch professional wrestling. And I just, I just always remember that. I, I can't look at professional wrestling without my, my grandmother's face fly, you know, flashing in front of me. And I just, as, as I was growing up and I've talked, told these stories before, I mean, you know, I grew up in the era of the American Wrestling Association, the AWA, and Vern Gagne and the Crusher and all those things. And I would go, not all the time, but I would occasionally go to the matches when they were at the old Milwaukee Auditorium. And um, then, you know, professional wrestling, the different smaller leagues went out of business and it all became Vince McMahon and the World Wrestling Federation, now the WWE. And I, 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 I was still, even though I was grown up, I, I'd still, you know, at the era of Hulk Hogan and stuff, I'd kind of go because I thought it was incredibly entertaining. My producer grew, goes to wrestling shows to this day, you know, every once in a while for, for the entertainment value of it. And it's just, there, there is, again, it is kind of what it is. I don't watch professional wrestling nowadays, but, but I, I know it is still this, again, this, this, you know, multi, probably billion dollar enterprise. I was thinking about this yesterday because there was news that, um, the, the guy's name was Leon White. And he, you, you probably don't know the name Leon White. He was an All-American uh, center at the University of Colorado for two years, got drafted by the L.A. Rams, was actually on the team that the Rams had that made the Super Bowl in 78, um, but then he, he messed up his knee, and so he was out of professional football. So here you have this, this really big guy. He's out of professional football. He's in his early 20s. What do you do? Well, he became a professional wrestler. He went to Japan in the 80s, honed his craft, and then came back to the United States and was in various wrestling leagues as one of the the best real big guy, you know, like the 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 monster bad guys. He he was Leon White became a big van Vader. And if you're a wrestling fan, maybe you saw him he used to come out, he had this red mask on and you know, he was one of the one of the the biggest drawing wrestlers for a long period of time. I bring this up because uh, he passed away yesterday at the age of 63, apparently heart problems and then had heart surgery and developed pneumonia following the heart surgery and, and couldn't come back from this. And, and I got to thinking, and again, it's like I said with the, the lead into this, that there's, um, there's older people and then there's wrestlers, but there, there's not a lot of wrestlers that live, um, live long lives. Some obviously do. But I think part of it's just the the strain that you put on your body and the travels and things like that. And it's just stunning to me, you know, how many wrestlers die at way before the general population is to the point that, you know, if you find, you know, that wrestler who's still alive in his 70s or, or older, it, it's it's almost like it's it's a surprise because that tends not to happen. Now, in this particular case, again, the guy had heart problems. He was really, really big. Um, and then it was pneumonia following that. But I mean, I remember some of the different events that he was in, and he was in the old National Wrestling Association, the Turner stuff and all, and then later on the WWE. This was just an incredible wrestler, and I saw him wrestle in, in person, you know, on, on many occasions, and he was really, really good. Now, so now he's passed away. Now, I just want to do this for one segment, and I understand there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're talking about immigration and all, but every once in a while, I, I know, I, th- I think a lot of us, we share the same kind of sensibilities. And I remember watching Leon White, Big Van Vader. I mean, I, guess I, I saw him wrestle in person on a number of occasions, and he was amazing. I, and what I'm always amazed at when I, when I see this is how big these guys are and how athletic these guys are, because the truth is, 
even though wrestling is quote unquote fake, meaning they're playing characters, the the storyline is scripted. I am amazed by the things that these people can do and the falls they take without breaking their necks. Now, a lot of times they do end up injuring themselves, but it's amazing to me the athleticism that a lot of these wrestlers have and have had over the years. And for a guy his size, I mean, I, I think Leon White, Van Vader, I think was one of one of the best I ever saw. So I know, I know some of you share the same sort of interests that I do and grew up watching wrestling. Maybe you're watching wrestling to this day. Who's the best wrestler you ever saw? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I mean, the complete package. You know, maybe, maybe it's the ability to do interviews. Maybe it's the ability to move. I mean, who's, who is the best you ever saw? And it could be in person, could be on TV. But my guess is if you watched it on TV, you probably saw some in person as well. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. All right. Leon White passes away yesterday. You probably saw him perform as Vader. I, I think you can make an argument. He, I mean, he wasn't Hulk Hogan. All right. He, he didn't. He never achieved that sort of status. But he was a really, really big star, and I thought he was a great wrestler. Who's the best one you ever saw? Let's start with Jeff in Milwaukee. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hi, uh, Jeff. I just know uh, you, Jeff. Hi. I just mentioned to you about um, the Crusher. Right. <laughs> lived to be a ripe old age. Yeah, he he did. He was um right. He he, he beat the odds. <laughs> yeah. No, he no. Thanks to God, no, he he beat the odds. And of course, the Crusher is the wrestler that made Milwaukee famous, and they're going to be putting up the statue on the south and South Milwaukee, and, and and all appropriately so. I don't know. I think he was incredibly entertaining. I don't know that people would argue he was necessarily ever the the best sort of athlete. But you, you got to love the Crusher. Okay, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Is the best you ever saw. One segment. We'll be back with your calls in just a moment. 143, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 146, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Yes, I know there's immigration issues out there, but I, I just this, this show is about stuff that interests me, and I hope it interests you. And yesterday, the announcement, if you grew up watching professional wrestling, you probably know who Vader was. Um, the guy's real name was Leon White, died at the age of 63, and uh, that a lot of lot of professional wrestlers die way before their time. We're talking about who the best you ever saw was. Let's talk to. Let's start with uh, Jason in Sheboygan. Hi, Jason. Hey, good afternoon. Um, by far the best, ravishing Rick Rude. He had the Rude Awakening. Mm-hmm. I grew all the mullet in high school <laughs> to be like him. I would gyrate like him, and mom would always get mad at me. <laughs> He was the best. He had the rude awakening. I mean, he had everything going for him. He was a bad guy. He's my favorite, and I still think he's the best. You know, and he passed away. I mean, that, that he forty-one years old, heart attack. Yeah. You know, for I mean, thank, for heart attack at the age of forty-one. Yeah, Rick. I remember Rick Rude, Michael in West Dallas. Michael, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Michael. Uh, I saw Andre the Giant wrestle at Mecca Arena, probably like maybe eighty-five or eighty-six. Uh huh. Nolan and. He was a great showman because me and my brother went, and you felt like he was staring at you when you were, you know, calling out to him. And he just would stare at the crowd, and and he was just a great showman. You thought he was staring right at you, and I mean that guy put on a show. He wrestled Big John, two big men, but just a great professional. Did you, um, do you, Michael? Do you have HBO? Do you have uh, HBO? 
No, I don't right now. Uh, there's on on HBO. There, they have a documentary about the life of Andre the Giant, and it's about ninety minutes long. And it's been making it. It's if you ever if you ever get a chance to see it, you should watch it because it it follows his career and all the different ups and downs. You know, he died at the age of forty seven um, back yeah. in ninety three. But um, it's basically. I mean, I mean, he was. Before Hulk Hogan, he was Hulk Hogan before there was Hulk Hogan, Andre the Giant. And again, um, I, I can't, the other night, what we were watching, oh, The Princess Bride. You know, he's, uh, Fran and I were watching The Princess Bride. And I, I just, you know, he's he's in that. And, you know, one of the things they were saying in this documentary is how how physically messed up he was, how 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 much the guy hurt. He was seven, he was seven foot, they, they built him at seven four. He was really just seven feet tall, just seven feet tall. But he was this enormous guy. And we just talked about how, how messed up he, he was physically from all the demands that, that being a professional wrestler had. 414-799-1620. Jeff in Wapaka. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, buddy. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. The best you ever saw. It was uh, Fond du Lac in the early 80s, the old AWA at Marion College. Terribly foggy night, and half the wrestlers couldn't make it. So Bobby Heenan actually had to wrestle instead of just manage. <laughs> okay. And he was fantastic. Oh. He uh, he got thrown into the corner, into the turnbuckle, and instead of just crashing into it, he like slipped over and hung there. It was the funniest <laughs> thing I ever saw. Yep. The other thing I remember about that night is it was really running late because it was foggy, and somebody in the crowd screamed out, "Come on, hurry up! We're losing bar time." <laughs> <laughs> no, that's no. Bobby Heenan, of course, was a manager and a commentator. He passed away. He again, he's another one of these guys that beat the odds. He had actually he, he fought cancer. He passed away last September. Um, but he he made it until his seventies, which is kind of the the exception. Let's talk to um, let's see, Kurt in Two Rivers. Hi, Kurt. You're on WTMJ. Hey, what a fun question! I've had so many memories. Uh, so, like your grandmother, I drank the uh, the Kool Aid, and I was convinced <laughs> this was real. Um, and at age 13, I got hired by a local arena in Michigan to be the locker room attendant. And my job was to go back in the locker room and say, okay, you guys are next or next thing. And the, the, the previous match is over, whatever. And, um, when I saw Tommy Wildfire Rich right. and Rick Flair arrive in the same car before the event, I thought, how in the world can these two enemies stand to be in the same They hate each other, other, right? How can they be together? I, yeah. I, I thought the whole place was going to come unglued and that I was going to call my friends and say, come now, they're fighting right now. And they were best friends. They, they talked like they were best friends. And I was just horrified that these two guys were actually uh, actually could tolerate each other. It, it was um, just a blow to your childhood. It, it was the day you became a man when you found out, gosh, the, these guys, it, they, they really don't hate each other. Right. And the, the time that I was most terrified was when I saw the Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal. Right. They came to our town, and these guys had the greatest laugh, both of them, just this huge belly laugh. Um, and I think one of those guys, I think it's Animal, who is now uh, who's now dead. If uh, but no, but, Hawk is uh, dead. Hawk but, is the one that died. Yeah, oh, Hawk is the one. Okay. And, and Animal's Hawk kid. Animal's is, kid is. Um, uh, his real name was Laurentus. He's play, he plays linebacker for I want to say it's St. Louis, but I could be wrong. Oh, really? I yeah. didn't know that. But when those guys entered the entered the gym, uh, I was I was terrified, <laughs> and uh, and and even if I knew the truth that it wasn't real at that point. Those guys are just so intimidating. So yeah, that would no, no question. No, no, thanks. No, and that was actually I, I would put up uh, right the, the Road Warriors, Animal and Hawk. They kind of revitalized tag team wrestling at the time. Yeah, Animal is dead, and um, um, Hawk is Hawk passed away. 
um, had a bunch of problems. Um, and Animal, I, I'll look during the break. But yeah, his kid is a professional. His kid played linebacker at Ohio State and now is in the pros somewhere. But it's kind of interesting. Um, Steve in Germantown. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Although we differ politically, <laughs> I'm going to have to say Jesse the Body Ventura. <laughs> back, back, back in the day, did, did he gave great interviews. There's no question about that. I saw him once at a Grateful Dead show, and I looked over in the seat next to me, and I'm like, you couldn't see the seat at all. This man was just massive. <laughs> it, was, it was great. And, you know, not everything you see at a Grateful Dead show might not really be there if you've ever been to one. Oh, yes, exactly. Thanks for the call. It was, um, uh, yeah, it was uh, just interesting. Okay, um, Road Warrior Animal, Joseph Laurinaitis, right? And and his kid kid plays linebacker um, for one of the teams. I'll figure that out as well. But, yeah, it's kind of interesting how this this entire thing goes. You just, you just, have to have to love it and we all grew up with it and it, it is you've got to appreciate what a difficult job it is and i i understand there's people that just kind of dismiss it oh it's fake and all that type of stuff and well it, it might be predetermined but you just you look at the flips and the falls and the the landings that these guys do and it's incredible i think for me and a number of people are texting this it, it's probably rick flair um years and years i mean th- this guy he would wrestle for an hour you know regularly um, I thought he was a great showman. He was great on the microphone. And, and he also, I, I mean, he just, he, he really, I think, worked at his craft. They, they did a, a documentary on him for ESPN, and I highly recommend that as well if you're a professional wrestling fan. Ric Flair um, obviously got a lot of lifestyle issues, hard lifestyle on the road, takes a lot of people early. And Ric Flair, um, not a normal life to begin with, but nevertheless, just a great wrestler. In any event, um, if you remember Big Van Vader like I do, he passed away yesterday of Ceylon. It's 154, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 209. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, 59 degrees outside. What was it? while back it was 94 degrees and today is of course the first day of summer I, i've said this repeatedly i wish every month of the year could be june and today is what the the longest amount of of daylight time and i don't i don't mean to be the glasses half empty guy and start talking about how now the days start getting shorter i just uh, enjoy it but it would be nice to start getting some decent summertime weather i'm talking about you know, days without rain and enjoying sunshine and temperatures in the 70s and maybe early low 80s or something um, hopefully we will get that at some time, sometime in the relatively near future. Okay, here's the deal. In Kansas, anybody 21 years and older who can legally own a firearm can carry a firearm without a permit. Right? Don't need a permit to carry it. Don't know if you need a permit to carry it in the concealed fashion. I don't think so, but I'm not sure. It doesn't matter. There's a guy who owns a, uh, a restaurant, uh, and I get the idea it's kind of like a cafe sort of place in, in Wichita. He's got a sign up on on the door to his restaurant that says, guns are welcome on our premises. And it's got a picture of what appears to be like a nine millimeter pistol. 
and it's got a, a green circle around it. You know, and if you if guns were going to be banned, you'd have the slash mark through it. This is just a picture of the gun. It's got a green circle around it. It says in capital letters, guns are welcome on our premises. And then in smaller letters, it says we fully support the Second Amendment. Um, he That sign has apparently been hanging on the door to his restaurant for quite a while. Um, over the weekend, someone who handles the social media for the restaurant decides to take that, that sign and the picture of it and put it up put it up on the internet, put it up on the Facebook page for this place. Place is called the Riverside Cafe. So it's it's not just you're putting it on on the door to your restaurant. You're you're putting it out there once, you know, you you go into the internet, you're putting it out there for for everybody to see. It's not just perhaps a, a customer. And needless to say, after this posting is made, there is this incredible outrage. People saying, "I would never Never, ever eat at your restaurant uh, if you're going to allow people to carry guns inside it. Well, of course, my guess is a lot of these people weren't eating there anyways. But it has sparked what I think is a very interesting conversation. And I, I want to spend a segment having that conversation with you. If, for example, in Wisconsin, businesses um, can can exclude people from carrying firearms if they choose to do so. Um, if you come into our our building here, company I work for, Scripps, they've got these big signs posted that says that this is a gun-free zone. You're, you're not allowed to bring firearms here. If you've got a firearm, if you've got, a, for example, a concealed carry permit, I think you could leave it in the parking lot of your car. I think they have to let you do that. But you're not allowed as an employee or as a guest to bring a firearm into the building. That is a choice that the company ends up making. In this particular case, the owner of this restaurant is making the choice to allow people to bring guns into the restaurant, and it's generating this huge discussion. Would you be more or less likely to patronize a restaurant or a bar or a place of business that allowed people to carry guns, or would that be a red flag? If you saw a sign like this, you don't know this restaurant from Adam. You know, but you've heard good things, good word of mouth. I hear they got good burgers or whatever. But then you find out that they allow people to bring guns inside that restaurant. Would that be the thing that says, no, I'm not going to it? Would you be more or less likely to patronize a place? Or would this be one of these things that say, hey, if they allow patrons to carry guns in this restaurant, no way in the world would I go there. How does the gun policy affect your dining choices? If it does. 414-799-1620. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will share my thoughts with you, but I'm curious as to what you think. Would you patronize a place that says guns are welcome on our premises? 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 214. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're just tuning in, the sign on the door to the restaurant says, let's see, what does it say precisely? Guns are welcome on our premises. Since this this story, since they, they posted this on the Internet, they're getting all sorts of attention, some good, some bad. I'm just curious, would you be more or less likely to go to a restaurant that or a business in general that said, hey, you know, guns are welcome here? Um, before we get to the calls, a couple texts. Jake says, I do not support businesses that display no firearm signs. I spend my money where they support our Second Amendment. 
I would go out of my way to visit this cafe if it were here in Wisconsin. Leanne writes, sounds to me like the safest restaurant around. Um, another text, I carry, I can still carry my weapon everywhere I go. If they have a no guns or no weapons allowed, I simply don't go there. 414-799-1620. Dan and Racine. Hi, Dan. Hey, how's it going? Good. What do you think? Would you be less likely to go to a place like this? You know, just in the normal scheme of walking around the world, if there's not a sign that says that you can't bring a gun, that means you can. So most places, you, you're able to bring a gun anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and I do think um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that the bad guys don't care if there's a sign or not. Well, that's, I mean, that's it. And I guess that's kind of how I look at it. My concern, and, and see, something like this would not bother me at all. My concern would be that you have, again, somebody who's intent on holding up the place that's, you know, got a gun stuck in their waistband that, you know, people can't see, and they're intended to commit a crime. They're not going to be deterred by this sign one way or the other. That's who I'm worried about. And the fact that you say, okay, if you're a law-abiding firearms owner, you can have a gun. I don't have a problem with that. They're not the people sticking up Denny's. They're not. Right. Yeah, no, thank, no thanks for the call. I mean, I, and I guess that's... That, that's sort of how I, I look at this, that this idea that, all right, you know, you've got firearms that are out there. The people who have the permits or the people who are legally carrying otherwise, I don't think they necessarily need the, the permit in, in Wichita, Kansas, but that doesn't matter one way or the other. I, I think the people who are out there doing it, they're not the ones that I am worried about. I am worried about, I don't know, the, the 18-year-old kid with the lengthy criminal record Who's sitting in, you know, the, the, the diner looking for the opportunity to rob the cash register. And that's not going to be the person who is the licensed concealed carry holder, for example. Let's see. Um, I'm a, here's a couple texts. I'm a concealed carry permit holder. The sign wouldn't make me more likely to eat there, but a sign prohibiting guns would make me less likely to patronize a restaurant or other place of business. Um, I think it depends on where you stand on guns as to how the sign affects your reaction. Um, yes. All right, here's a text. There is no way I would go there. First of all, someone with a gun can shoot the gun on ac- accidentally and hit someone. Also, I think people would have their gun out showing off to each other. The list goes on of what can happen. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you are a firearms holder and the fact that, you know, you're going to a, a diner, it's one of these deals where, Let's say, you know, you and a couple of your buddies, you get together on Thursday morning for coffee and eggs or whatever, and the restaurant has a sign like that up there. I I just, I, I'm, I know I have been in places where people, you know, have firearms, and I don't necessarily see people taking the guns out and putting them on the tables and saying, here, you show me yours and I'll show you mine. Typically, that that's not what happened. I guess, could it happen? But, um, yes, I, I guess it could happen, but is that reasonable? No. And if it had good food, I think I'd be going there. I mean, my experience is that the people who go to the trouble in Wisconsin, for example, to get the concealed carry permits, I'm not worried about those folks. I, I'm, I'm just not worried about them 
behaving in an irresponsible fashion. Um, here's what Bobby sends me a text, Bob from West Bend. This is what I send to businesses that prohibit guns. I noticed your no weapons allowed policy and with res- and will respect your wishes. I will be taking my business elsewhere until your policy is changed. As a holder of a concealed carry permit, I have never been convicted of a felony, a violent crime, or domestic violence. I do not use nor am I addicted to illegal drugs. I am not under indictment or a fugitive from justice. I have passed through federal and state background investigations. How many of these things do you know about? your other customers thank you hmm. good question 221 jeff wagner wtmj 223 jeff wagner wtmj Summerfest opens up week from yesterday next wednesday the big gig starts looking forward to that if you happen to be down on the grounds i'm going to be doing my show there several of the days we'll be down there um my first day is going to be a, a week from today i'll be down there next thursday and then a couple days the following week as well always a lot of fun don smiley bob babish they do an absolutely great job they and and one of the things that always strikes me about Summerfest is you 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 have to understand how fragile a lot of these outdoor music festivals have been trust me you know over the years you've had you know Things that have come and gone, and oh, this is an incredible success, and then five years later, it's disappeared. Summerfest has staying power, and it's not just Bob Babish's ability to identify talent and book bands. It's also been the commitment that the folks at Summerfest have made to upgrade the grounds. I mean, I remember the early Summerfests when the main stage was down on the north end of the grounds, and there were... Essentially, you'd sit on benches, and then there was grass. You, you just look at that facility now and the way the different stages are set up compared to how it was in the beginning, and it's, it's just amazing. And they're constantly working at developing new stages and, and enhancing the entertainment experience, and I think they do a, a great job. And it's one of the reasons why Summerfest thrives, not only survives, like I say, but, but thrives. Now, I want to contrast that with with another facility in the area, and that is Alpine Valley Music Theater. I remember when they opened Alpine Valley. I am, a, am of that age. And there was a time at Alpine Valley when an Alpine Valley opened in, like, I want to say 77, 78, somewhere in there. And, and I can remember a time where there were concerts, it seemed like every weekend. And, and I mean, it was... It was the destination place to go. I can't tell you how many shows I've seen there over over the years. And Alpine Valley, candidly, has struggled a lot recently. Um, I, I don't think there's been, in my opinion, much money put into maintaining it. I, I say this affectionately, but I say it, at least from the concert-going experience. And I'm not talking about the sound, but just getting in. Getting in is a, is a pain in the you-know-what um, the, the parking lot, it, it's grass, so if it rains, you know, you're going to be stuck in the mud. The um, facilities, well, they, they haven't been upgraded probably since they were, were built. And, I mean, I, I, I hate to be judgmental, but I, it's a dump. It, it's just flat out a dump, and there, there's no other way of saying it. Also, the folks at Alpine Valley have had more and more problems booking acts to the extent that last year, they were not able to attract a single act to Alpine Valley. It was closed last year. Now, I, I lead up to this because Alpine Valley, back in business this year, sort of. Tomorrow and Saturday, they've got two day, they got back to back shows by the, by Dead and Company, which is, 
kind of the, the remaining living, many of the remaining live, li, living members of the Grateful Dead. Grateful Dead used to be one of the bands that played at Alpine Valley on a regular basis. So, so they're back. So it's two shows this weekend by, by Dead and Company. Then, uh, July 7th, Brad Paisley and Hank Williams Jr. And then Zach Brown plays two shows on August 11th and 12th. So for the entire summer season, you've got a total of five shows and you've got really three different acts. I mean, you know, the dead for two nights, Zach Brown for two nights and Hank Williams and Brad Paisley for one night. And, and that's it. I mean, that's it for Alpine Valley for the season. A lot of the acts that they used to be able to attract, or they haven't been attracting. Jimmy Buffett, I'm a Buffett fan, everybody knows that. I mean, Buffett, he hasn't played there in a couple of weather. Nobody was playing there this year. He's playing Wrigley Field, and so they have a deal. If you play at Wrigley Field, you can't play venues within X amount of miles for like 90 days or something, so you can't play Alpine Valley. Dave Matthews is at Summerfest. The Dave Matthews Band used to go there. So Alpine Valley couldn't draw any acts last year. This year, they've got three acts spread out over five days. Now, at the same time, I mean, think of the competition just out of the Milwaukee area. You've got Miller Park, which is booking more shows. You've got the, the Summerfest Amphitheater, which they are you know, revitalizing. And you've got some of the other smaller stages that they're working on at Summerfest. You have the New Bucks Arena. I hope they get a naming sponsor. It seems so awkward to keep saying the New Bucks Arena. I mean, hopefully they'll, they'll they'll find somebody to pay for the naming rights so we can say it's the you know X Y and Z Arena or whatever. But but regardless, you've got Miller Park, you've got Summerfest, you've got the the New Bucks Arena, and then a number of the smaller venues that are around. Not to mention all the stuff that's going on out in, in down in Chicago a, as well. So I mean, Alpine Valley back for a couple shows, but. But is the future really rosy? All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's what I would like to discuss with you. What is the future of Alpine Valley? Are they going to be able to turn it around? Are they going to be able to make it work? Because like I say, they couldn't book any bands last year. They couldn't find anybody effectively. This year, yeah, you've got three different bands. They've spread it out over five days, but that's not much to make a summer season on. I mean, that, that's 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 pretty slim pickings, especially if, like me, you know, you remember when it seemed like there was a big show every week um, at Alpine Valley. On top of that, the reality is there's not that many touring groups that are out there that are going to be able to pack a venue. Uh, of that size, 30-plus thousand people. There's just not that many bands that are out there, and the ones that are are competing now. Alpine Valley is competing with Summerfest and Miller Park and the New Bucks Arena and Wrigley Field and all the other venues in uh, Chicago. 414-799-1620. Is Alpine Valley going to be able to make it moving forward? What do you think? 414-799-1620. And if it goes under, will we really miss it? I will tell you where I come down on this, and we'll discuss in just a couple moments. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Look, my guess is, if you're like me, you spent many evenings singing concerts at Alpine Valley. Um, is, is it even worth bringing back? Is it? Does it have any chance of succeeding? It's 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, so delighted to have you with us. 414-799-1620, that is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 
again, I, I come at this from the perspective of somebody who's a lot, seen a lot of shows over the years at, at the Alpine Valley Music Theater. Uh, last year, no shows at all. And I will be honest, I thought that was going to kind of be the death knell for, for the venue. But we heard, no, it's going to be coming back, and, and it, it is coming back. This weekend, you've got two shows, the... The, the Grateful Dead knockoff, the, you know, after Jerry Garcia passed away, some members of, of the Grateful Dead who tour as the Dead and Company, they're going to be doing two nights. And then you've got uh, Hank Williams Jr. and Brad Paisley doing one night. And then you've got uh, Zach Brown doing two nights. But that's pretty much it. And it, it it's almost impossible for me to see how, when you have a venue like that, how, when you have that limited a number of shows, you're going to be doing five shows, three performers, how you're going to be able to generate enough revenue to, I don't know, pay for, you know, upkeep of the facility, much less upgrading the facility. I, I hesitate to say this. And again, I, I hope I'm wrong because I think, you know, the more venues you have, the better. I, I just think you're looking at the last days of the Alpine Valley Music Theater. I, I mean it sincerely. I don't. When you look at all the different competition and the newer venues that are out there, again, whether it's and, – and more and more of the bands that can fill a venue like Alpine Valley, you see more and more of them are, are choosing to play, hey, if you can get to Wrigley Field in Chicago or you can get to Miller Park or you can get to Lambeau Field or, or whatever, you, you see them choosing to do that, some of those unique stadium type of venues that are really, really big – then that limits the number of choices you can have. And, I mean, again, I I don't know. Is, is Dead & Company going to draw two nights in a row? Or are they going to draw 30-plus thousand people? I don't know. Brad Paisley and Hank Williams, Jr., I like both of them. But are they going to fill the place? I tend to doubt that. Zach Brown, maybe for one night. I don't know about two nights. But regardless, if you're only going to be doing five shows over a course of a summer, you're, you're not going to be generating, I think, that type of revenue which is going to allow you to put the type of money that you need to put into that facility to upgrade it to, I don't know, I think meet the standards that a lot of us have as concert goers because, I don't know, it might have been cool in the 70s, but as many of us get a little bit older, I don't know, our, our tolerance for, I don't know, sitting on the lawn and standing in a line to use porta potties kind of, kind of gets old. And I think you're competing, number one, against the different venues. Plus, let's be honest. Alpine Valley Musical Theater, Music Theater, for those of you who've gone there, it, it's tough to get into, and it's impossible to get out of. I mean, you've got just a couple access roads that are, are going in, so you go to a night where you're going to have a big show, and you're pretty much guaranteed, unless you leave early, you're going to be waiting 30 minutes, an hour to get out. I mean, it's a tough place to get to. It's a tough place to get out of. And again, I, I think you look at a lot of people, and they're saying, Convenience is a huge factor. I just, I, I don't see where the performers are going to be coming from. I don't see the money available to upgrade the venue to, I think, a lot of the, the standards that people want. And again, you, you want to see it be successful because as somebody who likes to go to the different concerts, I, I, I'd like to have different choices. But when you see no business one year, and then just a very limited schedule the second year, you wonder, how can you make it? Jim in Milwaukee. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. Hi. Yeah, I was on your screener. I worked at Menards last year, and uh, Alpine Valley had an account with us, and they bought a lot of material. They pretty much did a lot of work on the main building. Um, I think last year that was their goal was to uh, do 
do a lot of updates uh-huh. and whatnot. It could use um, it. <laughs> it could yeah, use I'm it. Going yeah. out to the uh, dead show. Uh, I'm looking forward to see what kind of improvements that they did, mm-hmm. and uh, hopefully that's a stepping stone. And you know, I, I did backstage security for uh, Alpine for a few years, and that was back when Pearl Jam came. Mm-hmm. Um, and Zach Brown always came, and obviously Jimmy Buffett. Um, but you're mm-hmm. right about not having enough uh, a band that can fill that. Uh, well, there's that there's only a limited. I mean, really nowadays there's just a limited number of bands. Dave Matthews would probably be one. You know, right. even the Buffett shows. You know, they, they used to be sold out, and now I mean they still draw okay, but the Buffett shows weren't selling out. Um, exactly. You know, you, like the the Dead and Company show. Um, radio stations are giving out. You know. Right. Gotta win tickets there. So right, yeah, they're kind of paper hills. Yeah. Well I guess and, and again I, I just I mean part of it is there's just so darn much competition during during the summer nowadays when you look at all the different venues that are around and I mean the truth is, Jim, it is it is hard to get there. You know, I mean it's hard right. to get there and it's hard to get back. Well I hope you enjoy well, the show. Huh? Yeah, I will. Uh, can I say one more sure. thing? Um you know there it, there's a lot of places that have camping and they have like a whole weekend of bands. Right. Um, you know, if there's some way, I know Walworth County won't allow it, but if there's some way that they get Alpine Valley could set up a camping area, mm-hmm. I bet, I bet that would be a plus because people come out, spend the whole weekend, they can camp. Um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's an idea. Yeah. I mean, thanks for call. I guess the, the question is going to become, can you book when you are competing with Summerfest? And all the other stuff that's out there in 2018, it's not 1982 anymore, in 2018, given the level of competition, given all the different venues that are there, can you attract the type of performers that are going to bring the type of crowds that you need to make it work? And if Live Nation can figure out a way to make it work, you know, go with God. That That's great. There's, there's more choices, and maybe there's going to be a show they want to have. But I will tell you, I mean, to... For me to go to Alpine Valley, it's got to be a show I really, really, really want to see because it's so difficult to get in and out. Summerfest is easier. You've got, you know, the the amphitheater, which is being renovated. I, I just think it's a tough sell. And I hope I'm wrong. I, I, I do. I hope I'm wrong. But I, I was expecting if First of all, I didn't think the Alpine Valley was going to come back. If they did come back, I, I thought it was going to be with a much fuller slate of entertainment than they have. It, it's it's pretty spare pickings. But if you're going to the show this weekend, enjoy it. I'm sure I'll hear about the you know improvements to the extent they've made improvements because Lord knows um, there were improvements that needed to be made. 242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Um, I, typically on this program, I, I, I don't have guests. Occasionally we'll make exceptions to that because I just find it more interesting to talk to you about the things that hopefully we find of interest. In addition, I, I typically... Don't read opinion pieces that I stumble across, but but every once in a while I make an exception. And there's there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday that was talking about the way President Trump gets covered in, in the media. And I found it to be very interesting because it kind of dovetails on some of the things that I've been thinking as well. This obsession that we have with, with Trump derangement syndrome and whether or not it's healthy for the country. Let me share it. It's, it's a portion of it. It's again, it appeared in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. It's by a guy named Patrick Miller. As a Swiss journalist, I followed U.S. policies and media since the Clinton administration. But when I moved to Boston five months ago for a sabbatical, I got a new perspective, and it has stunned me. 
I'm subscribed to several major American newspapers, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Boston Globe. Too much of the press is obsessed with the president. In the New York Times, I counted 14 articles dealing with Mr. Trump in a recent Friday edition. One of them, an editorial, was titled The Cult of Trump and accused Republicans of revolving around a man rather than ideas. Could it be that the media's excessive Trump coverage is a kind of cult, too? Could it be that, as important as this presidency indeed is, other relevant issues are crowded out? To be sure, the media must report and comment at length on events like the Group of Seven and the North Korea summits. They must analyze in detail the Iran deal withdrawal, the imposition of tariffs, and turnover in the administration. It is journalists' duty to criticize and investigate every president and administration. Yet, this is where it gets interesting, many news organizations are allowing Mr. Trump to dominate the news cycle even when it comes to trivialities. Do his tweets about Kanye West, Roseanne Barr, the National Football League's national anthem policy, and the latest twist in the Stormy Daniels case warrant the scale and the scope of coverage they receive? The Trump hysterica, hysteria extends to the president's family and friends. When a Boston Globe reporter disclosed that a small number of Harvard alumni mocked Jared Kushner, that would be the president's son-in-law, in their 15-year reunion book, Shame on you. The newspaper ran the scoop on the front page. It goes on. Boris Johnson said in a private conversation reported earlier this month, I'm increasingly admiring of Donald Trump. I have become more and more convinced that there is method in his madness. Mr. Johnson is a former journalist, and it's worth thinking about how the method works on the press. We are all locked in the symbiotic relationship, Mr. Trump, the media, and the audience. Who will break out first? Certainly not Mr. Trump. Most likely not the media. So will we have to wait until the audience gets tired and stops reading articles like this one just because of the T word in the headline? I thought this was so interesting because it dovetails on on something that I have been certainly experiencing and I've been noticing when I have conversations with you about, about coverage. The, the, we right now live in the society where it, it seems like everything is Trump obsessed. Look, I I understand, for example, that the the issue of you know separating uh, people who come into this country illegal fam- illegally in the families. I understand that that is an issue, but at the same time, think of, of all the attention that that has gotten. That the fact that it dominates the nightly newscast, like it's almost the only issue that's there. And that's just the issue of, of this week. You know, what was it last week? It was the, the G7 meetings. And it's one after another, you get almost like the, this obsessive cult-like coverage. You get the cult of Trump, but also you get the cult of the media. Um, there's been on, on Showtime, this, this thing is called The Fourth Estate, and it's a four-part show about the New York Times. And it it focuses on the New York Times coverage of President Trump during the first year. And and it's interesting to watch because, as I've said this before, number one, you watch it and you understand just that you see this visceral hatred that these reporters have for for Donald Trump. It's they're not they're not holding it back, but it's how it it is Trump obsessed. And I understand the man is the leader of the free world. And I am not in any way, shape or form arguing that. You know, the things that come out of the White House and these issues don't deserve coverage. Of course they do. But again, it is this obsession that you have, and it's just sort of like bouncing from one purported scandal to another. 
And whenever there's not the scandal du jour, then we go back to the whole Russia thing. And it ends up taking the breath out of everything else, sucking all the air out of everything else that goes on in the world. And, and what I think it is happening, and I think that this author kind of touches on this. I mean, I, I think President Trump revels in the attention. The media that hates him revels in doing this, and it's become kind of this blood sport. And I think, really, it is the audience it is those of us who are consumers of the media. I, I think you're already starting to see it. More and more people are, are just pushing back, and they're saying, okay, I- enough. We, we don't, you don't need 20 minutes on the nightly news um, that all says the same thing, and again, whatever the scandal is. Again, I'm not arguing that the stuff isn't worthy of coverage. What I argue is that the coverage is so obsessive, and it's so over the top, and it's almost this... This, you know, relationship between the media and, and Trump and Trump baits the media and then the media goes after Trump and, and we don't find out about anything else. And it, it's this obsessive point. It's to the extent that, you know, you have some people, for example, in the mainstream media who don't understand who President Trump's supporters are and view this as almost like this slavish cultish stuff. I, I think this guy makes a great point. The press in many respects, they, they've got the, the cult as well to the extent that it is just so obsessive that we've got to cover this and we've got to beat it into the ground. And then, of course, everybody follows suit. Well, ABC is running this story on the separation of families, which I understand is a story, but but at the same time, there's all sorts of other stuff that's going on in the world. I think sooner, and I believe it's already starting to happen, you have more and more of the average citizens, you know, people who care about what's going on in the world and people who are attuned into current events, but at some point in time, they're, they're just starting to punch out because they're tired of this, which isn't to say that you don't engage in legitimate coverage. Of course you do. But is it going over the top and is it getting extreme? And I think you, you've passed, I think you've well passed this point. And I, I firmly believe, I understand that there's news stations that have kind of like planted their flag that we're going to just obsess and everything's going to be. Either we hate Trump or we love Trump or whatever. I firmly believe in that that sooner or later, that's going to burn out among the vast majority of the audience. Matter of fact, I think a lot of people have already started to burn out on that obsessive, cultish either covering of the president or the cultish adoring of the president. There's a lot of other stuff going on in the world. It's two fifty four. Actually, to bring us up to date on some of that stuff. John McCure and Melissa Barkley are going to be in. We'll find out what they have on their minds. Please stick around. Again, 254 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.